Good morning, and we welcome you to Kale and Company Live on this Monday. A delight to have you along with us. 1450 AM WKXL, 1039 FM in the Capital Region, 1019 FM in Manchester and beyond, and streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. And uh, very pleased to have as our guest this morning, the new head football coach of the uh, UNH Wildcats, Ricky Santos. Ricky, good morning to you. Good morning, Ken. Thanks for having me. Really well, appreciate it. Well, it is uh, my pleasure, and uh, we welcome you to the program. And how, how does it feel to be uh, replacing uh, a legend and a, and a mentor and a friend like Sean McDonald? Well, you know what? It's uh, it's an incredible opportunity. Uh, humbling, really. You know, learning from him all those years. He's uh, been a tremendous mentor. Um, you know, he was one of the, the greatest coaches that I've ever had, and you know, being blessed with this opportunity to, to lead the program into the future is something I've always dreamed of and, you know, really excited to, to get this thing going. And now only a few days away from uh, Thursday night's opener in Durham uh, against Monmouth College. Uh, how do you assess what you've seen uh, so far in practice from your players? You know, I think we're, we're climbing. We're getting better every single day. You know, we understand, um, you know, despite some of the preseason polls being ranked where we are, it's about us. It's about how we can attack each day and get better on all three phases, you know, on offense, defense, and special teams. And, you know, I think we're – with the experience we've had the last few years, you know, even though it didn't necessarily um, lead to some wins last year, I think we have a lot of guys returning that have played some meaningful snaps. So we're going to pull from those those game reps and give us more confidence as we go into the opener. Of course, uh, last season the Wildcats got off to a pretty good start and then uh, fell on some hard times. Uh, what are the uh, the – Areas specifically that uh, that need to be improved for the 2022 season. Well, I think uh, it starts with the offense. You know, um, you know, we kind of faltered a little bit down the stretch last year, so you know we got to make sure that we play well at the quarterback position. Uh, we got Max Brosmer back healthy off ACL surgery, so he's looked tremendous during camp. You know, he worked to to get his body back to where he needs to be. He's fully healthy, ready to go. Um, and then I think we got to lean on the guys up front. We have a veteran presence at the offensive line position. You know, I think they're biz, big, physical. Um, you know, they can play nasty at times. And then, you know, for us, Dylan Lobby is a, is a versatile player that can beat you with his legs. Uh, he can be a threat out of the backfield. So he's got to be a focal point for us. Um, and then, you know, we're really receiver by committee right now. We got guys like Brian Espinette, Charles Briscoe, and Sean Coyne coming back. Um, and then we got a couple of transfers that I think, uh, you know, should bode well for our system. Well, as you know, probably uh, better than most that uh, an offense and a quarterback is only as good as its offensive line, and, and you touched on that. Uh, how, how would you assess uh, the work of the offensive line thus far? You know what? I think they're, they're growing, and I think it starts with, with our senior captain, Patrick Flynn. You know, he's played all five positions in the four. This will be his fourth year starting. He's played the most games out of anybody on the roster, so it starts with him. Um, and then, and then another player of note is Osho Mignani, who we kicked inside the center, you know, taking over for Matt Masha, who was a three-year starter. So he's done a tremendous job picking up the scheme. And obviously the center is the one that has to communicate everything and ID the points and the run in the pass game. Um, and you have to be someone who's extremely vocal. So I think he's done a great job in that role. Um, and then, yeah, I think, you know, the group is, the group is much improved. Yeah. And uh, what about on the other side of the football, uh, the defensive unit? Defensive unit strong. You know, they've, they've been the, the unit for the last five or six years that's really carried us and, and gave us an opportunity to, to win football games. 
um, and kept it close in the ones that we've lost. So really excited of what, what Coach Garrett Gillick ha- has done. Obviously, it's first time being a defensive coordinator for him, but he's been in the system. He's learned from John Lyons over the last decade. So, um, you know, we got a few new wrinkles that we're going to unveil on, on game day. But I think overall, it, again, it starts up front. You know, Nico Kavikis is somebody who – has played a ton of football. He was named captain, so that just shows you how everybody thinks of his leadership skills. And Josiah Silver coming off the edge, obviously a freshman All-American. We're looking for him to really build on that phenomenal freshman campaign. You know, at the second level, we we we're, we got a bunch of guys that can run, and they're physical, um, and they're really smart, cerebral football players. And starts with Bryce Shaw um, and Ryan Toscano inside, and then, you know, we have three or four other guys that can really, really play. Dane Williams is somebody that – you know, has stood out during camp. And then the, the back-end guys were really excited to get Coach Casey DeAndre back. And obviously him being a former All-American here, you know, and somebody who was touted as one of the, the greatest leaders that we've ever had here at UNA. So having him back, having a great presence, getting those guys coached up, you know, as our defensive pass game coordinator has really helped them out. You know, I think Randall Harris is somebody who has stepped up big time at the corner position. And then Noah Stansberry, who was a corner last year, I mean, excuse me, was a safety that we moved to corner, was a little apprehensive at first, and he's really kind of taken to it. And I think that they have a great opportunity to have a one-two punch. Um, and then, you know, John Bose does a tremendous job with the safeties. You know, Max Oxidine was nicked up a little bit at the beginning part of camp. He's fully healthy, ready to go. You know, and he's the quarterback of the defense. Our guest is the uh, first-year head coach of the UNH Wildcats, uh, Ricky Santos. And uh, for those who don't know, uh, Ricky uh, has some uh, tremendous career stats at the University of New Hampshire as a quarterback, uh, all-time uh, leader in pass completions and passing yards, was a three-time Atlantic 10 Colonial Athletic Association Offensive Player of the Year from 2005 to 2007. So I, I guess I'm going to ask you, uh, Ricky, as a former quarterback and a very, very good one, at uh, UNH, what uh, what kind of an offense uh, can we expect from the Wildcats this season? Yeah, we're gonna be we're gonna be multiple. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna base out of a lot of the spread concepts that that we've done in the past. Um, you know, but we're also gonna pull from some some new West Coast kind of passing stuff that that we've tweaked in the off season. You know, we want to be a run first team because um, I think you know one of our goals on offense is to you know, be tops in the conference and the country in time of possession. So we want to control the clock. We want to control the game. And then with that, make sure that we have, you know, play action shots off of our top runs. So, you know, we want to be multiple. We're going to run it, but we also need to make sure we're explosive in the past game. And I think that's one thing that we lacked last year. We've really done a great job making a concerted effort, you know, in spring ball and this fall camp is making sure we're, we're taking some shots so our guys can see themselves making plays down the field. Ricky, what did you learn uh, when you served as the interim head coach uh, in 2019? Well, I think the biggest thing is, you know, football is in the game. I think it's a, it's a platform to teach life skills. So, you know, the biggest thing that I want to do is is allow our student athletes to know that they can trust me, um, that I'm there for them, that I truly care and love them, and I want to I want to work that the relationship aspect first. And I think if we can build that trust and we can work at it and be connected and and work on the family type culture that is so important to us. If we do that, I think the, the, the wins will take care of themselves. And, and, and I think that's the biggest thing to make sure that our guys are bought into the system. Um, and then schematically, you know, I think it's just making sure that we're, we master our systems. We're students of the game. 
you know, confidence comes from preparation. I tell those guys all the time. So we want to be an elite team that prepares well, loves the, the film study aspect of it. You know, not just making plays on game day. They need to understand if you want to have competitive greatness, if you want to make plays on, on game day, you have to win Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at practice. So being a team that prepares really well. How do you feel about the uh, recruits that you've brought in for uh, 2022, the freshman class? Say that one more time. The, the freshman class, the recruits you've brought in, how, yeah. do, you, how do you feel about uh, their, their progression uh, during camp? Well, I like them. There, there's a few that, you know, we brought in about 15 scholarships, uh, young men, and, and another about 15 walk-ons. So it was, it was a really big class for us. A uh, few of note, DJ Lincoln, you know, a receiver, standout receiver from St. John's College in D.C. is somebody who uh, just keeps getting better and better and better. You know, he's going to find his way on the field early. Uh, Cam Gardner-Young on the defensive side of the ball is a defensive tackle. Uh, who needs to put on a little bit more weight and get stronger, but he's got such a great natural ability to rush the passer. Very smart, really good instincts. You know, so those are two guys uh, who have done a great job. And some of the in-state guys, obviously, we made a concerted effort to keep the, the best talent in New Hampshire home. Um, Colby Ramshaw is somebody who has, has stood out for us, um, has done a great job coming in at the tight end position. You know, he, he's physical, he's cerebral, um, and he, he's, he's a willing blocker. Outstanding. And uh, so Monmouth on uh, Thursday night in, in Durham, uh, the place will be packed. It'll be rocking. What, what do you know about your opponent? Oh, well, first and foremost, they're, they're extremely well coached. Um, Kevin Callahan has done it, you know, for, for over 30 years. You know, I worked with his son at Columbia, who's the um, Kevin Callahan Jr. He's the receiver coach, um, pass game coordinator, recruiting coordinator. So they're going to be multiple on offense. They got a really good quarterback and obviously, he garnered a ton of respect coming in, uh, being an All-American. He was, he was voted preseason first-team QB for the league. Uh, they got a dynamic running back as well. You know, I think Juwan Fari, he's, he's a big play threat. He's physical. He can give you the tough yards, but also make those home run plays. Uh, and defensively, they're going to make you earn everything. They're physical up front. They play man-to-man. They blitz from everywhere. So, I mean, it, it's an incredible, incredible opportunity for our guys. This is, you know, as good of a football team as we're going to face all year in the opener. Ricky Santos, I, I wish you the best. I, I thank you for coming on this morning. I, I hope we can make this uh, a regular thing during the football season. Appreciate it very much, and uh, best of luck to you and the would, team on I Thursday. Love, I would love that, Ken. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. All right. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Ricky. Thank Take you. Care. Take care now. Bye-bye. Ricky Santos, new head football coach at UNH, but has been around the program for a long time and was one of the outstanding players ever at uh, the University of New Hampshire as a quarterback. So Thursday night, the opener against Monmouth College, 7 o'clock in Durham. Kale and Company live for a Monday. We shall return on WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com. Don't you dare touch that dial. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Concord area, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond, and streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. We are live here on WKXL, and breaking news this morning is that uh, fuel leaks during final liftoff preparations have threatened to postpone the launch of NASA's uh, mighty new moon rocket uh, this morning on its shakedown flight with three test dummies 
aboard. No astronauts aboard uh, the Orion, but uh, test dummies are aboard. As precious minutes uh, ticked away, NASA uh, repeatedly stopped and started the fueling of the Space Launch System rocket with nearly one million gallons of uh, super-cold hydrogen and oxygen because of a leak. The fueling system uh, already was running uh, nearly an hour late because of thunderstorms off Florida's Kennedy Space Center. Uh, the leak of highly exposed hydrogen appeared in the same place that saw seepage during a dress rehearsal uh, back in the spring. Then, a second apparent hydrogen tank, uh, a hydrogen leak, I should say, turned up in a valve that had caused trouble in June, but that NASA uh, thought it had fixed, according to officials. Uh, later in the morning, NASA officials spotted what they feared was a crack or some other defect on the core stage, uh, the big orange fuel tank with four main engines on it, but they later said it appeared to be just a buildup of frost. Rocket was uh, set to lift off on a mission to put a crew uh, into orbit around the moon. Uh, the launch represents a milestone in America's quest to put astronauts back on the lunar surface for the first time since the Apollo program ended some 50 years ago. Uh, NASA's assistant launch director, uh, Jeremy Graber, said after the repeated struggles with the first leak that the space agency would have to decide whether to go forward with the Monday morning launch. If NASA scrubs today's launch, the next attempt would not be until Friday at the earliest. Now, again, uh, no astronauts were inside the rocket's Orion capsule. Instead, the test dummies fitted with sensors to measure vibration, cosmic radiation, and other conditions. They were strapped in for the six-week mission, scheduled to end with the capsule's splashdown in the Pacific in October. Even though no one, uh, no one was on board except the test dummies, Thousands of people jammed the coast to see the rocket soar. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris was expected to be among the, end, uh, the VIPs. But right now, the flight is on hold. The Orion mission, part of uh, Artemis, the Artemis One mission, as it's called. Now, I remember, uh, and I'm sure most, uh, most of you do as well, those of a certain age anyway, when man first landed on the moon, July 20th, 1969, it was a Sunday, that's over 53 years ago, July 20th, 1969, and I'm sure if you are of a certain age, uh, you will remember exactly where you were uh, at that time. I was at Old Comiskey Park in Chicago at that time, watching a, a doubleheader between the uh, Chicago White Sox and the expansion Kansas City Royals. And, you know, it was the, the same weekend. It was the same weekend of uh, uh, Ted Kennedy's Chappaquiddick incident. And uh, the, the, obviously the main focus was on man landing on the moon. But that Chappaquiddick was also a big issue uh, at, at that time. 
But I, I do remember where I was, and I remember the circumstances. Uh, there was a player for the Chicago White Sox at the time by the name of Walt No Neck Williams. And Walt No Neck Williams was at the plate for the Chicago White Sox on this hot Sunday afternoon uh, in Chicago. And he beat out an infield single. I remember the, uh, the ball was in the shortstop hole. The uh, Kansas City shortstop made the throw to first, but uh, Juan, uh, I should say, uh, Walt Williams, uh, had his momentum carry him uh, about halfway down the right field line. He was running hard down the first base line, beat out the infield single. He was uh, running down that right field line, made it about halfway down that right field line, and then started to walk back to first base. And as he did, as one, the crowd gathered on that Sunday afternoon at Comiskey Park in Chicago, stood as one in a standing ovation. And so I remember Walt Williams, no-neck Williams, walking back to first base with his palms extended, his palms upturned, questioning why the standing ovation for your basic infield single. And then uh, what happened was the Soxogram, one of the first message boards in Major League Baseball, the Soxogram center field at Comiskey Park in Chicago, had just put on the message board, man has landed on the moon, or something to that effect. And that was the reason for the standing ovation and not the fact that Walt Nonek Williams just beat out an infield single against the Kansas City Royals. But he was not aware of that. He was wondering what the big deal was about his infield single, but it was not about his infield single at all. It was about man landing on the moon for the very first time. So that, and I, I bet you knew or you know where you were uh, and still recall uh, what the circumstances were when you first heard that man had uh, landed on the moon. But where have we gone since then? I mean, I'm talking about an incident or an event that took place 53 years ago. Uh, and uh, we are still studying the exploration of the moon. In fact, uh, as we mentioned in this flight of the Orion, there were only test dummies aboard. There was an article uh, today in the Concord Monitor uh, years late and billions over budget, NASA's new moon rocket makes its debut in a high-stakes test uh, test flight before astronauts get on top. Uh, the 322-foot rocket will attempt to send an empty crew capsule into a far-flung lunar orbit 50 years, really more than 50 years, after NASA's famed Apollo moonshots. And if all goes well... Astronauts could strap in as soon as 2024 for a lap around the moon, with NASA aiming to land two people on the lunar surface by the end of 2025. But we did that. We did that. 53 years ago, it was done. 53, more than 53 years ago. It says the six-week test flight is risky and could be cut short if something fails, according to uh, NASA officials. And this is the Artemis One mission. 
And of course, it was uh, Apollo that reached the moon back in, in 1969. But apparently, there's a lot more to be done uh, before astronauts step on the moon again. A second test flight will send four astronauts around the moon and back, perhaps as early as 2024. A year or so later, uh, NASA aims to send another four up, with two of them touching down at the lunar south pole. You know, I, I would like, and I, we are going to do this between uh, the efforts of myself and, and uh, my producer, Kat, we are going to get, we are going to get an expert on NASA on the program to find out what the end game is. I mean, untold, untold billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars, have been spent between 1969 and 2022 on space exploration. And not that I'm opposed to it, although it is a lot of money. I would like to know what the end game is. What do they hope to accomplish? I mean, we're still talking about doing the moon stuff and circling the moon 53 years after we actually landed on it. I, I don't, uh, I can't grasp it. it. It takes somebody a lot smarter than myself, obviously, to grasp what is going on in outer space and what NASA has been working on. So we want to get a guest on here to find out exactly the story behind the story. What is the end game? We'll take a break. It is Kale and Company live for this Monday. Great to have you along with us on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company Live. If you missed any of the uh, prior portions of this program, especially the uh, section with uh, Ricky Santos, the head football coach at the University of New Hampshire, you can hear the show again at uh, a little after 7 o'clock tonight. We're talking about the uh, launch of the Orion space rocket, part of uh, Artemis One, uh, and of course, uh, more than 50 years later, Apollo, of course, still stands as NASA's greatest achievement uh, using 1960s technology. Uh, NASA took just eight years to go from launching its first astronaut, New Hampshire's own Alan Shepard, and uh, landing uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. By contrast, and this is from an article in today's Concord Monitor. By contrast, Artemis already has dragged on for more than a decade, despite building on the short-lived moon exploration program, Constellation. Uh, Twelve Apollo astronauts walked on the moon from 1969 through 1972. Twelve of them staying no longer than three days at a time. For Artemis... NASA will be drawing from a diverse astronaut pool, currently numbering 42, and is extending the time crews will spend on the moon to at least a week. Uh, the goal here, the goal is to create a long-term lunar presence that will grease the skids for sending people to Mars. And NASA uh, promises to announce the first Artemis moon cruise once Orion is back on Earth. And it has not launched as yet. 
It was supposed to have launched uh, this morning, but it is on hold at the moment, and there is no word as yet as if it will, in fact, go off today. And if it doesn't, it will be at least until Friday before Orion goes into outer space, part of the Artemis One uh, mission. Elsewhere, things that are going on, this from Fox News, White House remains mum on how it plans to pay for President Biden's decision to cancel between ten dollars to $20,000 in student debt for some Americans, or, or if future tax hikes will be needed to cover the proposal, which by some estimates will cost more than five billion with a B five I should say five hundred billion dollars. Five hundred billion dollars. Despite unveiling the policy uh, last week, administration officials have yet to clarify how the proposal will be paid for in the long term. Since the current plan calls for the government to forgive the debt, that means, well, taxpayers, us, are likely on the hook for much of the principal and interest. And on top of what is already, already I should say, uh, a nearly 31 trillion dollars of national debt, 31 trillion dollars, and growing every second. Fox News Digital uh, reached out to the White House multiple times inquiring how the Biden administration plans uh, plans to uh, pay for the student loan handout or whether it was eyeing future tax hikes to pay for it. Well, one of the uh, experts uh, responded, Deputy uh, National Economic Council uh, member Bharat Ramamurti claimed Friday the plan is fully paid for through deficit reduction. Ramamurti said it is paid for and far more by the amount of deficit reduction that we're already on track for this year. Apparently, we're on track for $1.7 trillion in deficit reduction this year. That means, practically speaking, compared to the previous year, $1.7 trillion more dollars are coming into the Treasury than are going out. And we're using a portion of that, he says a very small portion of that, to provide relief to middle-class families consistent with the president's plan. Now, we shall see. Administration officials, while not addressing how the added spending will be offset, have argued in recent days that the national deficit is already plunging under Biden's watch. Administration officials have also claimed that the cost of Biden's student loan handout cannot be fully accounted for since since it is unclear how many borrowers will opt to take advantage of the opportunity. They say it remains unclear how many individuals would have paid back the full amount of their loans over time anyway. 
The National Taxpayers Union Federation disagrees. Uh, The group issued uh, an analysis earlier this week estimating that if student loan handout adds nearly $330 billion to the deficit over the next decade, as a budget model by the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business asserts, the average cost per taxpayer will be $2,085. But that could be on the low end. The Committee for a Responsible Budget puts the cost of the handouts at between $440 billion and $600 billion. Not the $330 billion that the White House is talking about. The fiscally conservative think tank in particular says the federal government will need to figure out a way in the future to make up for the forgiven loans, whether it be spending cuts or tax hikes. Much of it, the group predicts, will be via the latter, meaning in tax hikes to you and me. When broken down, the data showed the sum to be significantly more, significantly more for higher income brackets, but still socket to the middle class. For instance, according to the group, taxpayers making between $1 and $50,000 annually would pay more than $158. The cost for those making between $50,000 and $75,000 is estimated to be $866 and $1,477 for individuals making $75,000 and $100,000, while those making between $100,000 and $200,000 would face costs upwards of $3,150. And earners pulling down between $200,000 and $1.5 million a year would pay nearly $9,950 to cover the student loan handouts. As you know, uh, Biden announced on uh, Wednesday of last week plans to forgive $10,000 in student debt for borrowers making less than $125,000 annually. Pell Grant recipients will receive $20,000 in debt handouts, provided their income is below the $125,000 threshold. Administration officials claim that no individual or household in the top 5% of earners will benefit from the decision. And the White House is also extending a pause on student loan payments through the end of the year. Uh, Coinciding with that announcement is a new Education Department proposal that allows borrowers to cap undergraduate loan repayment at 5% of their monthly income, adding the cost to taxpayers of the handout. Penn Wharton's budget model estimates the total cost of the proposal when accounting for loan forbearance and the new repayment cap could be could be more than $1 trillion when it's all said and done. And you know how many Democrats have already separated themselves from the loan forgiveness proposal. And I don't know if it's ever going to happen. There's some 
question as to whether it requires an act of Congress for something like this to take place. It's going to be a long time coming, I do believe. And uh, some Democrats, uh, Chris Pappas for one, our first district congressman from Manchester. Uh, He has separated himself from the president uh, in handing out these these loans, the loan forgiveness of ten to twenty thousand dollars, and many other Democrats have as well. In fact, many Democrats have separated themselves entirely from uh, President Biden, as uh, you well know. Coming up on a break, it is uh, Kale and Company live here on WKXL NHTalkRadio.com. Don't you dare go away. We will be right back. Kale and Company live for a Monday. A delight to have you along with us. And uh, during that last break, we learned that the the flight of Artemis One, the Orion rocket to circle the moon, has been canceled for today. There will be no launch today. So as we learned earlier in the program, that launch will take place at the earliest on Friday of this week. So uh, no launch today of uh, Artemis 1, the uh, new mission to the moon. Uh, An appearance by uh, Mark Zuckerberg last week on Joe Rogan's podcast. Stoke controversy over the Meta CEO. He admitted that uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story ahead of the 2020 election was, uh, you know, you know, they didn't didn't talk about it on uh, on Facebook. It was uh, that story was not on Facebook uh, ahead of the 2020 election because the FBI, according to uh, Mark Zuckerberg, had warned Facebook about, and I quote here, Russian propaganda. After the release of the episode on Thursday, the FBI said, and I quote, it routinely notifies U.S. private sector entities, including social media providers, of potential threat information so that they can decide how to better defend against threats, end quote. In a statement released to uh, Fox Business, the FBI said, It has provided companies with foreign threat indicators to help them protect their platforms and customers from abuse by foreign malign influence actors. The FBI will continue to work closely with federal, state, local, and private sector partners to keep the public informed of potential threats, but the FBI cannot ask or direct companies to take action on information received. The agency said, Meta, that's the new name for Facebook, right? said later Friday night that nothing about the Hunter Biden laptop story was new. Company said the FBI shared general warnings about foreign interference, nothing specific about Hunter Biden. Of course, uh, in the final weeks of the 2020 presidential election, both big tech and the liberal media suppressed the New York Post's reporting that shed light on the shady foreign business dealings of the son of then-candidate Joe Biden. Uh, both Zuckerberg and uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey expressed regret 
for their actions at limiting the distribution of the Post's reporting, and several news organizations, including the New York Times, Washington Post, NBC News, and Politico, have since verified the authenticity of Hunter Biden's laptop. Of course, a little bit too late in the game for that, folks. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin, revealed this week in a letter to the Department of Justice, Inspector General Michael Horowitz, that whistleblowers allege that FBI officials told agents not to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop for months over concerns it would impact the 2020 election. Can you imagine a branch of the government getting into uh, politics, huh? (laughs) We've seen that recently with the invasion of Mar-a-Lago. According to Johnson, Senator Johnson from uh, Wisconsin, not Florida, as Joe Biden thinks he is, but uh, he's from Wisconsin, individuals with knowledge of the Hunter Biden case told his office that the investigation was intentionally slowed on orders from local FBI leadership. Surprise, surprise, as Gomer Pyle would say, that the government would would interfere. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, they're they're at it. They're at it again. This with a uh, Concord, New Hampshire dateline. As a former ski resort executive, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu knows something about uh, navigating slippery slopes. But uh, recent controversy controversy at a county-owned ski area, Gunstock, has raised questions about his grip on the Republican Party heading into November elections. Sununu, who's seeking his fourth term, recently inserted himself into a power struggle over the Gunstock Mountain Resort siding with staff who quit en masse and forced a two-week shutdown last month, pushing back against anti-government activists who want to privatize the ski area. Sununu also called for the ouster this fall of three Republican legislators with an oversight role of the resort. In an open letter that Sununu wrote to area residents, he said these individuals have made bad decisions, and until they're removed from their positions and replaced with good people who recognize the wonderful asset Gunstock is, the county will continue to suffer, end quote. Sununu's intervention was seen by many as a rebuke of the Free State Project, a 20-year-old political experiment that promotes a mass migration of 20,000 libertarians to New Hampshire, Now, fewer than 6,500 of those uh, free staters have arrived so far, but uh, they have made inroads everywhere from uh, school boards to the legislature. What that means for Sununu, the Republican Party, and the state overall is still uncertain. But so-called free staters are clearly, clearly shaking things up. Uh, Linda Fowler, who's a professor and matter Emirata, a professor emirata of government at Dartmouth College, Linda said, and I quote, in my view, the governor is barely holding on to his party in the lower chamber 
and some of the crazy things they have tried to pull have damaged his reputation in the state. End quote. Fowler, in 2003, dismissed the project, the Free State Project, as a gimmick, saying it was unlikely that even 20,000 people could have an, a significant impact. But she also did not foresee Donald Trump's election as president in 2016 or the coronavirus pandemic. Fowler went on to say, both, I think, have contributed to the fact Trump's election and the coronavirus, uh, that free staters are now a negative influence on the state's politics and that their behavior has become an election issue. So many of us, are, you know, don't know perhaps as much as we should about the free state project, but someone who does is going to be with us uh, tomorrow uh, on the program. And that's going to be Christopher Maidment. He is from uh, Americans for, Pros for Prosperity, New Hampshire. Americans for Prosperity. Christopher Maidment, who has been on the station uh, before. So we'll ask him about the impact of the Free Staters uh, here in New Hampshire and ask him about many things that are going on, including the upcoming primaries, which will take place two weeks from tomorrow, the 13th of September. About 45 free staters. Did you know this, that about 45 free staters have been elected to the legislature since 2008? And more than 20 are serving at the moment. And while that's uh, you know, a small fraction of the 424-member legislature, including the House and the Senate, it's enough to influence policy given the GOP's slim majority uh, in the House. The group counts uh, the House Majority Leader as one of its own. Members uh, often team up with dozens of other lawmakers who make up the wider Freedom Caucus, securing victories on legislation related to school choice, vaccines, and limiting, limiting the governor's power during emergencies. So we'll talk more with the Christopher Maidment about that tomorrow and many other issues. Christopher Maidment will join us in studio from Americans for Prosperity, New Hampshire. And we have more music coming your way on uh, Wednesday as Eric Lindbergh is going to join us uh, in studio, one of the outstanding local musicians. I'm sure many of you are familiar with uh, Eric's work. Uh, Dr. Barry Taylor is going to join us on Thursday. We have a lot coming up, but we want to get a NASA expert on the show to find out what the end game is for the space program. Uh, whether it's uh, the colonization of Mars, which we've heard about. Uh, but right now, the Artemis One mission is on hold because uh, today's blastoff of the Orion from Kennedy Space Center has been canceled and there will not be another uh, attempt to get the spacecraft into orbit until Friday at the earliest. So that's the breaking news that we've had this morning here on Kale & Company Live. And we thank you very much for joining us for the program here on WKXL. 
1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester, and streaming around the world and around the clock on nhtalkradio.com. Join us tomorrow. Have a great Monday.